This morning we're talking about defining moments, and I think this is one of the most defining moments in Christ's life. It's where the disciples realize something is up that they don't really understand. There's something going on here that is bigger than them because Peter thought he was on the same page, and Christ kind of sets him straight. Judas used to think he was on the same page, but I think it's kind of realized that um, when Mary Magdalene washed his feet with the nard and things, that it wasn't going to be quite the same thing. I think at some point in that times when Judas kind of figured that out and was when he kind of decided to betray Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight or today as we're going to be in uh, John chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 18. But our main point this morning is Jesus chose to focus on the prize of salvation for all of us rather than the cost. He, ex- he expects the followers or his followers, to do the same. And as I looked through this whole thing, I, was ha- I have a hard time on the downfall of the church in this case, or the downfall of the Israelites, or the downfall of man pretty in particular, like David. I don't like to read, I like to read David's front side of the story. I don't like to read David's back side of the story. I, I have a really hard time when I read through the Bible and I get to those kings that turn away from God and they, they, that struggle that comes back before one's good, one's bad, one's good, one's bad. I have a hard time with that. And I have a hard time with that because it used to really kind of define my relationship and it's not so much that anymore, but I think it defines, and it sometimes does, it sometimes defines my relationship because we all struggle, right? But it defines the church of the United States today, and how we have turned away from our Creator God. We've denied Him, we betrayed Him, and we've done the like all in His name a lot of times. And I, I've been really, it was really hard to write this sermon this week because of that, because I couldn't get past that. I, it was like stubborn, and the only thing that really got me through to write it first was Craig going, it's in there. You obviously have some something in there to talk about if it if it's in there. And he said that maybe he said that several times up in Sunday school when we were up there. And um, it just stuck in my head. And it was I was pushing through. And I was last night I was at the concert uh, for Sanctus Real. And I just the Lord said to me, um, "You are a stake in the ground." Okay, you ever hear about? You're going up a mountainside, and if you're falling down, maybe it's an icy slope, and you grab your axe, and you throw that, that axe in the ground to keep from sliding. Or if you're sliding down rock, and you, you put a, a pin in the ground so you, do, you don't slide down the mountain, right? Well, as a, as a believer, I put my stake in the ground um, pretty firm a, a while ago. But as a pastor... I've never really looked at it that way. I've never looked at at it. This is me being a young pastor. Uh, Putting a stake in the ground for those that that go away and they stray and they come back. You are their stake just as much as you are your stake. So I ask you to pray for me as a pastor coming to that realization because um, I understand if you can kill the shepherd, you get the sheep just as easy, right? 
And um, so that's one, one of those defining moments maybe that the Lord really revealed to me last night and was like, whoa, you're like, of course that is, but I don't know, maybe I, I just realized it. So that's where I'm at. Uh, it's just a bigger responsibility than, than that. It put this into perspective. Jesus is a stake in the ground for his disciples. When he comes back, when he comes back after he rises from the grave, he is still there. He still brings him in. He's still on mission. He's still looking toward eternity instead of looking at the betrayal, looking at the denial. He is looking to the future. And that's how we can get through these hard times, even though he knows they're coming, right? Praise God for that. Praise God that Jesus um, was able to look past the problem and look to the solution. And as we see the problem here, and as Jesus points it out to us, they're, they're doing the Seder meal, they're doing what we would consider like part of communion, right? And they're going through, Jesus just washed their feet, and he goes into verse 18, and he says, I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know that the ones I have chosen... But this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes a messen my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. That's got some passion in that statement, doesn't it? It's like, as in leadership, should I say this? Should I go on? Or should I? Um, and it blurts out. I tell you the truth. One of you is gonna, will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering which, what he could mean. The disciple. Jesus' love was sitting next to Jesus at the table, and Simon Peter motioned to him and to ask, who's he talking about? So the disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked the Lord, who is it? Jesus respond, responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to, G to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, and when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him, and Jesus told him, Hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant, since Judas was their treasurer. Some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food, to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. Betrayal. Everyone can identify with it, right? We all know what it means to be betrayed, whether we've seen it in a story or it's a, we've experienced it. We all have been betrayed before. We all have expectations that somebody didn't live up to or we haven't lived up to somebody's expectations. And so as we look through this, it'd be kind of rough the way they're arranged in a Jewish meal, Seder meal, they lay down at the meal. They each share a bowl, right? One would reach back and one would reach forward into the bowl. And so Judas was probably right in front of Jesus and John was right behind 
Jesus, most likely, or it's vice versa. But he had an, it shows an intimate relationship that they had. They were very comfortable with one another. The trust was 100%. And that makes the betrayal even more intense. Three and a half years of ministering together. Three and a half years of doing miracles. Either watched and seen Jesus do them. Or they've been able to perform them themselves. We know this because when he sent out the 12, he sent out the 72, which they were a part of, that they were able to perform these miracles. Three and a half years of wisdom being poured into them. Three and a half years of friendship, the laughs, the joys, the hope restored for Israel. And they're about ready to throw it all away. All but lost due to the biggest betrayal in mankind's history. Judas Iscariot, he was handpicked and groomed to share the gospel message. And in his case, he was actually, Jesus picked him to betray him because he knew he wouldn't follow uh, what Jesus had to say. And throughout history, he's probably Judas is probably glad that Benedict Arnold came along, so nobody goes, "You Judas Iscariot anymore, you Benedict Arnold," right? We we know his story. He he tried to give West Point over to uh, the British, and he was fouled up because George Washington's spies they intercepted uh, a transmission, which was actually a letter. And they were able to foil the plan before it happened. So this plan was not foiled, was it? Judas's plan was followed through, was given. He was groomed, handpicked, and Jesus picked him to betray him. Yet, he picked him in a way that would fulfill Scripture. He gives him a chance. Judas had every chance to accept Christ as his personal Savior, and he he chooses not to. Yet his story is not that much different than Peter's. But Peter waited, waited to see what was going to happen. Judas didn't. He took it into his own hands. So we don't know much of what what Judas was thinking at this point. We do know that Satan enters him, and we know that that would have to be allowed by Judas, we do know that he regrets his decision, and he goes to the temple courts. He throws the coins back and says, I betrayed an innocent man. So there's definitely guilt that happened in this. But God's plan was in effect, and the Pharisees' plan was in effect. And the dominoes had been pushed, and there was no going back. And this is how things are going to be. So this got me thinking, how do betrayals start in a common person? How do they come about? What do they look like? How are they shaped? And the first conclusion I came was the one that I can be more familiar with is pride. And pride can really go two ways. The first way is I can see where a person is going and I think my way would be better. 
you know, they can take the company so far, but if, if we were to go this route, we could really excel. It'd be a little bit more risky, but I think I can pull it off. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, right? The other one looks similar to the second one, but it's, well, I deserve that promotion, not them. I deserve the accolades. It should have been me, which is going to be our second one, kind of like. They wouldn't be anything without me. Right? We see both things. If you ever watch cartoons, you can see these um, being the underling that always betrays the, the hero of the story. I was the one that did that. I was the one. But they don't see the full story. They don't see what um, everything that was going on. Um, and you see that in any good tragedy, right? You see that in... William Shakespeare, you see it in um, Transformers. So it, it, it spans the test of time. It is a story that comes out of um, the very first betrayal of Adam and Eve. It's, it's part of our human nature, and Christ is enduring probably the worst one ever. The second one is control due to the lack of hope. Some people will betray and try to take control because they don't know if we're going to make it through this things. I see this in, oh, you see this in war films all the time where the, the one officer's not taking them down and the one's got to rise up mutiny because he's going to march us to our death. But if we go this way, see how it's similar to the other one, our pride. But usually this one comes out of uh, the men rallying up against the, the commander that actually knows what he's doing opposed to the one that doesn't know what he's doing. But that's not the case here. Christ knows exactly what he's doing. Peter and, and Judas, they're having struggles with it. Judas, I think, sees that Christ intends to die. He understands what it means to be the suffering servant, and he doesn't want that, and so he's not going to be a part of that. I'm not going down with the ship. I'm going to betray him before it happens. So I need to take control of the situation. I need to mutiny. Sometimes this is out of self-righteousness. Sometimes this is out of self-preservation and the, or the preservation of the group. In Judas's case, I think it was out of self-preservation. And it's usually done out of fear, which I think you can see. Because I think Judas starts to get a glimpse of what Christ intends to do and what he's said and he is starting to come back to him. I betrayed an innocent man. What am I going to do? I remember what Christ said. Woe is me. It would have been better if I was never born. And what do we know of Judas? What's he going to do? He hangs himself, right? He loses hope. Can Christ even forgive Judas? Of course he could have. Christ would have done that as well, which we see that because we see that in Peter. Peter almost does the very, very similar things. He denies him when he needed him. We'll talk about this in uh, John 18 when we get there. But today we're going to talk about the betrayal. We're going to talk about the denial. So this also got me thinking, have I been betrayed? Have I been betrayed? 
Yes, I have had my authority undermined more than once, and I think we all have. And for all the reasons listed, one I remember well. We were playing street hockey. Now, this is silly. Like, you, you were betrayed at street hockey? Yes, I was. Hear me out here. We played with a group of guys that we've been, we grew up together, right? And we played forever. And we were coming down, and we were about ready to score a goal. We would have won the game. All the guy had to do, my brother passed it up to him. He had to pass it to me. He, was, I was, he had drawn the goalie wide. I had a wide open shot, easy. Could have done it 99 times out of 100. We we're going to win this game. Got it under control. And he shoots the puck right at the goalie, right at his glove, which is the worst place he could put it because now time ran out, game over. We either tied or, or we lost. I can't remember. Um, I was like, what were you thinking? And his brutal honesty, which left me jaw-slacked staring at him, he told us exactly what, why he did it. I wanted the glory. I wanted the last shot. I wanted the accolades. It's pretty much almost verbatim what he said. He didn't say accolades. It's a little bit bigger word for him, but... Uh, he did say, I, want, I wanted the glory. I wanted it to be me. And I couldn't believe it. One, I was dumbstruck that he put himself before the team. And two, it's kind of like, I totally identify with that. I've, I've been there. I've been in his shoes. I understand that's hard. But I also couldn't believe how brazen he was at how brutal honestly he was. And that, it was kind of refreshing So, I'm just glad I've never done that to anybody. You guys laughed kind of hard. <laughs> they say pride comes before the fall, and anytime we say, I'm glad that I've never done that to anybody, you better watch out because the Lord's about ready to teach you a lesson. Because one, you've recognized it. You've seen it play out, and now you'll recognize it when you do it next time, okay? So anytime you're like, wow, I'm really glad I've never done that, you better be on your toes. Here's one of my lessons. It was uh, right around that same time, I was in Sunday school in the college and career class, and we were filling out the attendance envelope, and my brother put his name at the top, implying that he was number one or that he was the leader of the group. And after a couple of weeks of him pointing out that it was on top and that he was the quote unquote leader, I kind of got a little annoyed by it. And Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie was coming out, uh, episode one. And so that puts you back in 2000, right? Somewhere in there. And I put on there, I put Shane right underneath of him, and I put leader of the Rebel Alliance, and I drew in the Rebel symbol kind of off onto the right side. And uh, he was, he was kind of the leader. He was kind of the doer, 
and the organizer of the ideas, and he, it wasn't always popular. I remember we made a transition from our group playing soccer to street hockey. It wasn't popular, but we all transitioned because he wasn't going to let it down, and um, we all saved up, got our stuff, and uh, actually probably liked it more than uh, soccer. And it was just amazing. But, you know, he shaped our group a lot, but so did I. So did I. I shaped our group a lot, too. And it was simple. It was funny. Until about two weeks later. You know when you got to stretch your legs a little bit as that rebel? Um, he saw that attendance sheet, and he goes, who wrote that down there? And I said, I did. And he looked at me, and then he's like, well, I think we need to do this. And I said, no. Nobody there wanted to do it except for him, but then I disagreed with him right after that, and everybody followed me, and he looked at me with a slack jaw, like, you just let me down. And it wasn't, the thing that he wanted to do wasn't, it wasn't anything wrong. There was nothing wrong with what he wanted to do. It's just, we didn't feel like doing it. So it was probably something we should have done. We just didn't feel like it. So it wasn't, it wasn't the time to rebel. It wasn't the time to say, no, we don't want to switch from soccer to hockey, which is, I did not want to do, by the way. It was something I let my brother down, and it was deeper than what I thought, and I undercut his authority. And my friends were like, oh, good job, Shane, way to stay up, stand up to your brother. But it wasn't the right time to do it. It wasn't the right time. And so my brother and I talked about that, and he let me know that it, it, it did bother him. That's what we say when it hurts you, it bothers you, it doesn't hurt you because men don't get hurt, right? That kind of bothered me a little bit. And I was why he explained it to me. He was very, very, he is still is patient with me. In some ways, he sees th things better than I do in that, and I'm totally oblivious. And I could see that I got used a little bit in that role of the leader of the Rebel Alliance. And so I went back the next week, and I told them that I would not be disagreeing with my brother unless I did it to him in front of his face. And I learned a lesson that day that, because <laughs> ask my wife, I used to be, and I still can be, very passive-aggressive. Um, I'm just pretty much aggressive now. I try to just stay aggressive in the sense that I will tell you what I, I either agree with you or I disagree with you, okay? Because then we can have her, we can work through that together, right? If I disagree with you, you can say, well, this is where I was thinking. This is where I was going. Okay, but have you thought about this? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then we can work it out and say, maybe we'll come up with a solution that's even better. That was one thing that Pastor Dave and I did really well together um, when we were working well together. I would present something to him, and we would hash out. And usually when we walked out of that room, the idea was better than when we walked into that room. So I've discovered when it comes to betrayal, it's easy to see in others, but it's hard to find in ourselves. And it starts with little things 
like putting your name as the leader of the rebel alliance under your brother's name, that can lead to a temptation that's much bigger than that, right? So praise God that Jesus is bigger than betrayal. And I give this example in Luke chapter 6, verse 43 and 44. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. These are words that Jesus says that he declares, right? And we find that Jesus is following through with these words right now. If Jesus is going to produce good fruit, he's got to be willing to take Judas back if he's willing to be received. Same with Peter, right? And Jesus follows through. We know that he does produce good fruit. It's important that that Jesus or Judas was in Jesus' life because Jesus can identify with the deepest kind of betrayal man has to offer. To come close, close for three and a half years, being friends, sometimes best friends, be trusted with the money of the group, and to go out and be betrayed. Jesus understands betrayal, doesn't he? Also in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, it says, Love your enemy, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, when your, your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he's kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Jesus was able to have compassion on those who turned their back on them, on him. Think about it. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. How many swords do they have? They have two swords. How do we know that? Jesus is about to ask Peter that in the other synoptic gospels. How many swords do they have? We have two, Lord. That'll be enough. Let's go. We know that he has two swords. He could have either got a sword or he could have told Peter, it's time to take care of Judas. He's about ready to betray us. He chooses not to do that, right? He has compassion on Judas. He has compassion on you and I. Every time we get in that same situation, he chooses compassion. Jesus chose to focus on the prize of salvation rather than the cost. He expects his followers to do the same. John chapter 13, verse 31 through 38 reads like this. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. God will be glorified because of him. Now I want to pause because I forgot to say something. Did Jesus wash Judas' feet? He washed Judas's feet. He served Judas just like he did the other 11. Then he goes out. Then they take communion. Okay? There's an order to that service that's important to know. They take communion together after Judas has left, but he washes his feet before they go. It's kind of interesting. Are we going to be doing that now? No, we're not. Um, verse 32. 
And since and since Jesus and, bleh, and since God received glory because of the Son, He will give His own glory to the Son, and He will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you cannot come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You shall love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? The Lord replied, you cannot go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even knew me. Jesus is heartbroken about Peter's future actions. I put let down, heartbroken, is maybe not quite the, the right word there. I think Jesus has got the hope that still that, that Peter won't do it, but he knows that Peter's going to do it. And so he's heartbroken even before it even happens. And I think only Jesus can do that, I guess. So maybe that's why I don't understand it. I think it would have been hard. This would have been a hard one to receive for Peter. I'm ready to die for you. Is that a true statement? I think it is. I think Peter's ready to die for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want him to die. Jesus wants him to live for him, which is much, much harder. First, he just told Jesus, hey, I'm ready to die for you, and now I'm going to deny that I even knew you? What could happen that would shake Peter into denying Jesus three times? What, what could change him? What could rock, his, rock him to his core, to his foundation, that he would do that? And it comes down to this. I think there's a philosophical fork in the road. We see it back with Judas back a while back. At some point, philosophically, Jesus and Judas are going two different directions, but we see it as well with Peter, and it may come down when he went to cut, slice the, the head off and only got the ear of the servant. And he's like, put your sword away. You told me to bring the sword. What? I, I don't understand. What? Who are you? Where, this, is where, this is our moment. This is where we're going to get the glory. I wanted to take the first shot. I wanted to do it. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to have compassion on this guy. He puts his ear back on and goes. Unbelievable. I, I don't even know if I know you, Lord. Who, who are you? The philosophical fork has happened. Now we see one with Peter and, and Jesus. Jesus is going to go and lay his life down eternally. And Peter didn't have any plans for Jesus to die, did he? 
Jesus handed himself over to the Jews and the Romans to die, and he would be alone because Jesus' philosophy was for the paying for the forgiveness of all sins for all time. He was there to usher in the age of grace for everyone to be saved from sin and death through the shedding of his blood. And Peter didn't have that in mind at all. He wanted to establish an earthly kingdom, and it rocked Peter's world. He had an idea of an earthly Messiah, similar to like an Old Testament judge from the Lord that would kill out or kick out all the Romans. When this does not go the way that Peter wants it, it crushes him. I, I don't even know if I can follow him in. John's got to get him past the guards, and he gets past the guards, and, and now he's like sticking out with a, like a sore thumb. He's loud and boisterous. His voice is carrying. Hey, didn't I just see you just a little bit ago? I mean, he's like, they believe that John was, I'm, I'm pretty sure it says that in the, in the gospel, that John was related to the high priest. And so he's able to get him in, the servant of the high priest. I mean, these people would know. It would be like, Chuck, this guy, he cut off Chuck's ear. I just saw it just a little bit ago. It's not like he's in a bunch of strangers. You have a Galilean accent. I'm pretty sure I just saw you a little bit ago. He's in the major pressure. And who's he thinking about? He's thinking about himself. Self-preservation. And I don't think I'd be much different than him. I don't think I'd be much different. I think Judas figured this out a little bit sooner than than Peter, but both were ready for an earthly kingdom, and Jesus said no. Jesus didn't meet Peter's expectation, but in all reality, in this moment, in John chapter 13, Peter was not meeting Jesus' expectations. I've come to save the world through my death and resurrection, and I can't resurrect unless I die. And so Jesus had to trudge that last three days, and this last 24 hours especially, all by himself. All by himself. His sheep were scattered. And this story, it rings true because we've all been let down. Unkept promises from a friend, or even closer, a a family member. Or possibly a family member that's an addict. That's one of the hardest right there. There's nothing more heartbreaking to have someone say no, having to say no to someone that we dearly love. When they are in the midst of the pain and the suffering, maybe it's an infant and they want your touch. They want you to pick them up. They want to be coddled. They want to, to be held so they can go to sleep. It's hard. It's hard to put them down, isn't it? It's really hard. Maybe it's having to say no to the teenager because we don't have the same beliefs as the host family and we're not really sure what they're going to allow the other girls to get away with. So we just say no. Or maybe it's to say no to a son or a daughter who's crying out in pain 
because they're going through withdrawal systems and they're just like, you got to help me. You got to help me. It's just one more time. Just one more. I'll be okay. Just let it go. I can't deal with this pain. It's so hard to see past that pain, isn't it? As a parent, someone you love in pain, it is those moments that just crush us. They would crush a regular person. And we cling to his promises in our in his word. First John 4 4 is one of them. It's greater is he who is in me than he is who in the world. So I can see past the pain to the solution. We got to get through the pain to get to the solution. Jesus, he knew this. He was able to get through to the solution of the resurrection. Jesus is bigger than our heartbreak. He doesn't leave us there. He does ask us to surrender to his ways, which means sometimes we got to go through the pain full full fledged. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It's Isaiah 55, 9. He asks us to look beyond the problem and to the solution. I remember counseling kids as a youth pastor, especially when I was starting out. How do I get past this? I can't see past the problem. And I would draw a little wall on the page. I said, you're, you're looking at this problem like you're trapped in a room, but really you're not. You're looking at a wall that's just, you can't see to the right or the left. And there's a path that'll get you around over or possibly through this wall, but you need to surrender to somebody else's authority, maybe somebody that's been there before, to get to that solution. And ultimately, who do we surrender to? We surrender to Jesus Christ. And he's going to be the one that's going to help us to go around in the unknown and get us through that problem. She still didn't understand. I said, it's like when you have a messy room. Do you have a messy room? She laughed. I thought it was hilarious. Of course I have a messy room. I said, you ever walk into that messy room after your parents told you to clean it up and you're just daunted by the task of cleaning your room? Well, yeah. What do you think is dirty? <laughs> well, touche. I know because I've been there. That's kind of how room I kept. So what do you do? You pick up the clothes on the way to the clothes hamper. You pick up your baby step. You pick up the clothes to the clothes hamper. You throw those in the hamper. You pick up your clean clothes. You put them on your bed. And pretty soon now you can see a little bit of real estate. And you start from the left of the door and you walk your way around. And you make a semicircle motion all the way to the front of the door. And pretty soon you look back and you're going to find that your room is clean. And she's like, yeah, I think. Matter of fact, I might even try that tonight. I need to clean my room. I've been, been harping on me for a while. I said, well, actually overheard her talking about that as she walked into youth that night. I said, well, that's a good way to do it. But that's a good way to do it in our spiritual life, right? When the pain is pressing on us, we don't focus on the pain, we focus on the solution, and we need to get a path to the solution. So it's a baby step to the next step to the next step, and sometimes it's a crawl, and sometimes it's painstaking time between steps. 
But Christ has called us to keep moving forward in His grace, push through the pain. It is not easy, friends. It is not easy. But He set the example when He walked to the cross. Jesus chose to focus on the price of salvation rather than the cost. He expects his followers to do the same. Finally, I want to go back and focus on those two verses in John chapter 13 that are so powerful. It's a new commandment he gives us in verse 34 and 35. It says, So now I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus loved in spite of the betrayal, in spite of the denial. Love sees past the problem. Amen? Love sees past the problem. In both Judas and Peter's cases, we see the problem of heartbreak and betrayal. The ultimate foreshadowing for what is to come in the story of Christ Jesus given to the one who's going to be betrayed, given to the one who's going to be filled with the heartbreak. Or as I would say it's probably full of the heartbreak even now because he knows it's going to come. Christ doesn't like to see that in us. A story that was predestined before time through the prophecies of God's word. And he even quotes it, uh, the Apostle John, that Jesus quoted it. The story that um, a betrayal and heartbreak, the backbone of any good tragedy. Jesus could have stopped it. He could have delayed it. But instead, he submitted to the Father God as an example for you and I. Jesus counted the cost and went willingly to pay restitution, not for his debt, but for our debt. He was faced with the daunting task to die for all mankind, yet he was able to look past the problem to the solution of the resurrection. He kept his eyes on his heavenly Father. The fact of the matter is betrayal and heartbreak, they hurt much, much more the closer someone is, right? The closer you let some in, the, the more intimate that relationship, the more heartbreak there is. If you let them in, you become vulnerable to be hurt by them. And if you've been hurt ever in your life, it's easier just to keep people at arm's length. But does Christ, does Christ call us to do that? Unfortunately, no. Because it's not about you. It's not about your pride. It's somewhat, it's somewhat about the person of who you are, but Christ commend that back. It's about their salvation. Are you concerned about them going to heaven? It's about loving your enemies as yourself. That is hard Christianity. The one commandment I like to just, just, just cross that out. It's nearly impossible. But all things are made possible through Christ Jesus our Lord, right? 
There's none closer to Jesus than the 12, and we find two of them at the cause of the problem, sinning directly against a holy God. This is Adam and Eve all over again. They were banished from God's presence. It is Cain who sees God says, you're about ready to sin. Turn away from it, Cain. Cain doesn't, and God has to mark him. Who do they, do they have to turn to? They have two options. Adam and Eve, they chose to turn to God. They ch- chose to turn to Jesus. That's where they put their hope, and they didn't realize it yet, but God's son. Or they turned to self like Cain did. He allowed sin to have mastery over him. And he was marked for the rest of his life. Judas, we know, turns to himself and tries to fix the problem. He ends up committing suicide because self is always hopelessness. We cannot be saved by our own self-righteousness, our own good acts. We're never going to be good enough. And Peter is lost. He's waiting around. Then he hears the news that Jesus is alive. Do you remember what Jesus told Mary? Go tell my disciples and Peter, right? And Peter, specifically Peter, make sure he gets this message. Because if he doesn't get it, he might not get it ever. And so Jesus made sure that Peter knew. Jesus pulls Peter close at the end of John. We'll read this. And he continues with the call that Jesus said from the beginning. Don't worry about everybody else. Follow me. How does he call him at the beginning? Follow me. Where are you going, Lord? Come, follow me. Lord, I'm an unworthy sinner. All these fish around me, I know I am, I am a horrible person. Follow me. You're going to be fishers of men. Does Peter understand that message? Absolutely he does. He's heard it before. He's experienced it before. And he understands what restoration is. Christ sets the example of when it comes to being betrayed, when it comes to being denied, and he brings these, this Peter back into his flock, not only as a little servant of all, he makes him the head of the church. Did Satan want Peter out of the way? Absolutely. He said, um, Satan's asked me to sift you out, Lord, of his hands. Maybe this is the point. He says, I don't want Judas. I want Peter. You ever wonder that? I have, especially this week. If their roles could have been reversed, and God says, no, I, I have a purpose for Peter. And Satan, I think, obviously knew that because he probably already knew he already had Judas. <laughs> so it comes down to this. Next week, we have about four people who want to get baptized. Friends, if you counted the cost, 
of what it means to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, is Jesus not only your Savior, but is he your Lord? Then we need to follow Jesus through baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. If Christ is in you and you are not ashamed of your relationship with him, it is time to let the world know through baptism. Right? Jesus chose to focus on the prize of salvation. That's what we choose to focus on here today rather than the cost. And he expects his followers to do the same. You know, did Jesus know there was going to be a cost? Yeah, he did. He probably was more aware of it than we ever, we ever will be. And he chose to do it anyway. And that's the kind of God that I want to serve. That's the kind of God that I surrender to. And I declare every week from this pulpit. And White Rose declares. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your mercy and that you're stronger than the darkness. You're stronger than sin. You're stronger than uh, my self-righteous foolishness. And you take me back in your namesake. Lord, we praise you. We adore you. We want to be just like you, Lord. Allow us to reveal our self-righteous tendencies. Lord, I pray that we would confess to those to you, that you'd be able to eradicate those, and that we would come into holy communion with you. Guide us, direct us, lead us, protect us. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.